0: Steve said that for my last Sunday, I could do whatever I want. (laughs) And the last time I preached a few weeks ago, there was somebody in the back who was like rocking and shaking, giving me some Cardi B energy. So I'm going to ask you to do that today. That's what I want. (laughs) So we have this old baby mattress from one of my children's cribs, and we don't have the cribs anymore, but we still have this mattress. I'm not sure why we never got rid of it, but it has become a topic of great interest in our home. The kids use it as a trampoline, and lately they've been wanting to sleep on it on the floor. And I suspect that CJ only wants to sleep on it because Chloe wants to sleep on it, but it has become a huge fight. Earlier this week, the kids were arguing about who was going to sleep on this mattress on the floor. And after a lot of tears and a lot of talking and compromise, we finally decided that both of them would sleep on this mattress. And so one would lie down with her head this way, and the other would lie down with his head this way, and both children would have feet in their face. I did not imagine that this would work for long, and so my plan was to go into the room after they had fallen asleep and to put them both into the nice beds that we paid good money for. (laughs) The plan worked reasonably well until I went into the room and I found that CJ was still awake. Even though I was exhausted, I got down on the floor next to him and caressed his little body so that he would go to sleep. And I imagine you're thinking, oh, how sweet. (laughs) Actually, my motivations were completely utilitarian. I wanted CJ to fall asleep so that Corey and I could watch Westworld in peace. (laughs) But then something happened. CJ leaned on me a little, and we began to talk about love. He told me how much he loved me, and he wanted to know if I loved him yes baby you know mommy loves you he asked if i loved him when he was bad yes loves you when you're bad he asked if i loved him when he was crying and i know that many of you think he is this really sweet easygoing child but he whines all the time (laughs) yes baby i love you when you're crying Then he asked me if I would love him if he went to jail. Jail? CJ, I hope you never go to jail. We're doing our best to give you options so that you never have to make choices that would land you in jail unless you were out protesting, because mommy is all about that life. But yes, (laughs) baby, I would love you even if you went to jail. This seemed like such a far-fetched question for my five-year-old son to ask. I don't think he knows anybody in jail, and it's unrealistic to imagine that a five-year-old would end up in jail. Except as I sat there, I realized that it isn't. Children as young as 18 months have been held in ICE detention centers awaiting release or deportation. Catch-and-release laws enforced by Democratic and Republican leaders continue to separate undocumented children from their parents. Many of us saw this week photos, which are now quite old, but photos of children sleeping on these mattresses on the floor with a light blanket, not because they found it exciting and interesting, but because they had no other option. We saw pictures of children the size of my five-year-old, lying in cages not much bigger than the cage you would find a dog living in in the Humane Society. And sitting right there on the floor, my frustration went away, or at least my frustration with CJ. I began to weep. I wept for children who have nobody to read them a story every night before they go to bed. I wept for the kids who couldn't get out of bed and ask for a cup of milk because they had a bad dream. I wept for the kids who had nobody to stroke their hair or to rub their bellies as they try to fall back asleep. I wept for children who would not reach developmental milestones because they don't have space to run and jump and play. As I lay there watching my own children, my heart broke for the son whose mother or father sent him away in search of a better life and for the daughter who would be awake all night feeling lonely and longing for home that felt so far away. I wonder if that's how Samuel felt the night that God called him. We can only imagine because the Bible doesn't tell us much about his inner thoughts or much about his day-to-day life. But what we do know about Samuel is that when he was weaned, his parents dedicated him to God. His mom, Hannah, and his father, Elkanah, left their three, maybe four-year-old son with Eli in a city called Shiloh. They did this so that he could be a Nazarite, a prominent position, a good life. But they were separated from their child. And yes, Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Yes, he grew with God's favor. Yes, he earned the people's respect. But did this child have anyone to stroke his hair as he fell asleep at night? Was there someone there to soothe him when he awoke with fright from a bad dream? If he had been home with his family, perhaps he would have shared a mat after he finished fighting with a brother or sister But there in the temple of the Lord, we find that Samuel was all alone. Did he feel lonely and long for his home that felt so far away? I wonder if Samuel felt swallowed up by the darkness, not just the physical darkness, but the metaphorical darkness. The Bible says that this was a time of great turmoil in Israel's history that people had no longer adhered to the law that God had given them and had done what was right in their own eyes. And this household, it was a bit dysfunctional. Eli had allowed his sons Hophni and Phinehas to steal sacrifices from the people and to have inappropriate relationships with women around the temple. Was Samuel frightened by all of this? Did he long for something different? Was he aware that God wasn't saying very much to the people? Was he worried about his future? Many of us know what it's like to be in a dark place. When the doctor says that you only have months to live, that creates darkness when your job is suddenly taken away, when your family is falling apart, when the news on the television is about school shootings and missing children and nuclear war, we find ourselves in a dark place. And sometimes darkness isn't precipitated by anything external. Sometimes we experience St. John of Calvary called the dark night of the soul. It's in that dark night that our faith is tested shattered perhaps the solid ground on which we've stood seems to crumble under our feet we might question who we are and what we're called to do we even ask ourselves is God really real but it's in the darkness that God speaks to Samuel it's not a booming word There's no cloud of smoke or host of angels singing. Rather, God speaks in a quiet voice. Samuel, Samuel. God's arrival is not always big and thunderous. For many of us, it may not even initially be clear that God is the one speaking to us. It certainly wasn't clear to Samuel. He ran three times to Eli thinking that it was Eli who was calling him. Here I am, for you called me. God has a way of speaking to us when we least expect it. We sense that something is changing We have a hunch when we're lying in bed or driving in the car. Maybe we hear a story on the news or read something in the paper and it takes hold of us and won't let us go. We don't always know what to make of it. So we try to fit it into the experiences we know. Oh, I must just be extra sensitive today or for some reason I just can't stop thinking about this family that I read about. I I just can't get the face of the person I passed out of my mind. It doesn't always occur to us that God is calling us. This is especially true when times are dark and we feel like God may not even be present. But at times where we feel like all is lost, even if God has been silent in the past, God can still show up and speak to you. And God speaks to unlikely people. Samuel was one of these unlikely candidates. His mother, Hannah, could not have children, and she prayed fervently for a son. She prayed so hard that Eli, the priest, thought that she was drunk, and she promised, God, if you give me a child, I'll give this child back to you. That's why Samuel lived with Eli Samuel had been raised in the temple and he had perhaps from his earliest days practiced the work of a priest, but he was not from priestly lineage. His DNA ancestry test would not trace him back to the Levite tribe. He wasn't next in line to serve, but the Bible says that Samuel found favor with God And God used this unlikely candidate to help the people find their king. And I wonder if there's anybody in here today who knows that you don't have to have the right resume to be used by God. God has always used people who didn't seem right for the job. God used a liar named Abraham to become the father of many nations. God used a drunk named Noah to build the ark and save the world from destruction. He used a murderer named Moses to deliver the Hebrews from captivity. He used a gangster named Peter to build the church and a child named Mary to birth the Savior of the world. And I'm a living witness that God still uses unlikely candidates. If God can use a woman who cursed out her campus minister, then surely God can use you. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to come from the right family or have gone to the right school. God can still use you. If there's anything we can learn from history, we see that God doesn't just call the qualified. But God qualifies the called. God is calling imperfect men and women today to help bring forth God's perfect kingdom. And even when we make mistakes, God can still use us. Just ask Eli. With his flaws and all, Eli served as a wise mentor to the young Samuel. Samuel. When Samuel misconstrued God's voice, it was Eli who told Samuel that it was God. It was Eli who gave Samuel those now famous words, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Perhaps we wouldn't expect this from Eli because we've already been told that he allowed his sons to do evil. But even with the mistakes Eli made, he still nurtured Samuel. In some ways, the church is like Eli. At times we've failed in our responsibilities. We've witnessed injustice all around us and we fail to act We've allowed people both inside and outside the church to take advantage of the poor. We've marginalized people because of our race. We've refused to include people because of their sexuality. We're reluctant to speak out against unjust policies. We let our fear of being perceived as partisan prevent us from being political. And this causes some to think that the church is no longer relevant. But one of the ways that we remain relevant is not to be trendy or gimmicky, but to help raise up leaders from the next generation. Part of the way that we remain relevant is to be honest about our failings and to use those failings to pass on knowledge and wisdom to the next generation. Eli understood that he and his sons would be held accountable. But he still nurtured the call on Samuel's life. And through Samuel's leadership, a new era emerged for the Israelite people. They moved from a system of judges to the rule of a king. And even today, we feel that we are in a time of transition and we hear lots of talk about the death of the church But even as the church as we know it dies away, we can prepare tomorrow's leaders to recognize the new thing that God is doing with us. So God calls. Eli nurtures and Samuel responds. And this is where a lot of people end this story because it's so heartwarming to hear this boy say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But the truth is, there's another twist to this story. God tells Samuel that he's going to destroy Eli's house and his offspring. Naturally, Samuel had mixed emotions about this. Perhaps he understood that they had done evil, but this has become his family in the absence of his natural family. And Samuel was afraid to tell this vision to Eli to the man who had raised him. How would Phinehas and Hophni react? Would these scoundrels try to ban him for the temple or worse, accuse him of blasphemy, blasphemy and have him killed? But when it came time to do the work, Samuel was courageous. And before I take my seat, I leave you with this. Sometimes when God calls us, the work we're called to do will be Frightening. There will be people in high places that don't take kindly to what you do or what you say. There will be people who try to make you afraid and make you shrink from the call of God on your life. But don't be held back by fear. Take courage. Nelson Mandela said the brave person is not one who does not feel afraid, but one who conquers that fear. And not only will you feel afraid, but at times you might get discouraged. At times, you will feel that no matter how much you do, it will never be enough. So what if I show up to volunteer for two hours at the Methodist home? What difference does it make? So what if I go every week and read a story at El Nido? What difference does it make? So what if I go to sharing table? There will still be hungry people in the world. I'm reminded of a story of a girl walking along the shore, throwing beached starfish into the ocean. And a man passing by said to the girl, there must be thousands of starfish lining this beach. What difference does throwing one starfish possibly make? Undeterred, the girl picked up another starfish and threw it into the ocean. It makes all the difference to the one I just threw back. You alone may not be able to change the world, but God can use you and use your gifts to make a world of change in somebody's life. So say yes to God's call. When you feel unqualified, say yes to God's call. When you feel overwhelmed, say yes to God's call. When you feel discouraged, Say yes to God's call. God is calling you by name. Each and every one of you say yes.